If you enjoyed this podcast, you might be interested to know that Tent Theology is running a spring school starting on the 29th of March and running every two weeks until the 3rd of May. In the spring school, we'll be going through the Sermon on the Mount, line by line. I ran a similar study session last year, and I asked the students for some feedback and whether we should do this again. The texts that we read were provocative, and I really think left an indelible mark upon my heart as I continue to engage in the world, um, both as honestly just a human, but also one that's engaging within community. So I highly recommend The Spring School. It's a great accompaniment to Stephen's brilliant podcast. For more information and to register, visit the Tent Theology website or send an email to info at tenttheology.com. It's the most amazing adventure you could possibly go on and I would thoroughly recommend it. Welcome fellow traveler. You are now listening to the Tent Theology Podcast. Each week we have a tent talk where we pursue the renewing of the Christian social and political imagination. Our guest today on the podcast is Justin Welby, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Archbishop Justin joined me to talk about Coming Home, the report that he commissioned last year and that is launched on the 21st of February. The report is a response to the housing crisis in England. It sets out the vital actions for the church, government and other stakeholders with a focus on building better communities and homes, not just houses. As it happens, I was one of the commissioners. As a political theologian, it was my job to lay out some of the theological principles and frameworks within which the other commissioners were going to do their work. I was really glad that Justin was able to give us half an hour of his very busy time, and I enjoyed talking with him. I really hope that you enjoy this as well. The way we do what we do with this podcast, Justin, is that we are all about reimagining the social and political imagination. And I have to say, one of the one of the things in the back of my mind was this is a word that's associated with your tenure, your position. I mean, you you launched, you basically came out of the gates with reimagining Britain. Uh, yes. And it, and in that book, you had a whole chapter on housing. And that was in 2018, I think. Is that right? Uh, I can't remember. 2017, I think. Uh, 2017. And right at the end of 2017, no, 28 or 2018. And there's a second edition coming out in April. And so out of that, that idea of reimagining Britain has come this new uh, focus on housing. And I... What I want to start with was asking, well, if you're going to reimagine something, what do you think the old imagination is right now? What are some of the key touchstones for what we're, we, you think we're imagining right now? The, 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 there's a certain sort of um, Soviet Stokhavanite approach to this. Right. Which is to say that on housing, the old imagination is bulk is high production. And I think what I've learned from the commission report and from other reading 
is, and from my past experience as a member of a housing association board, is there may be very good strategies at the local level, but there is no national vision and strategy. I'll say this again numerous times, so forgive me for being boring, but if you look at the three core areas that in the great social changes of imagination we've had over the last 150 years in this country, I would say that they were around health, education, and housing, going back to the mid 19th century. On health, the great reform and reimagination was clearly post-war the creation of the National Health Service. That has, if you want to, if someone says, what's the National Health Service for? The answer is providing its objective is to provide good quality health care free at the point of need. And that sums it up. There is nothing equivalent we can say on education at a national level. The church has a very clear vision for education in the million people it educates. But, uh, and there's certainly nothing equivalent to what we say on uh, housing except yeah. lots more houses. And in my conversations with politicians, I've said, picking up from the report, that ain't going to do the trick. Let me quote some words back to you, your own words, in the, in the introduction to this book, Coming Home, right? You, you talk about the lack of decent and affordable housing for people of this nation is a scandal. And later on, you say the chance seems remote of coming out of COVID-19 crisis with much of our social fabric intact unless we deal with this scandal. You think the stakes are quite high, this imagination of just building more and more blocks of houses. You're equating with a scandal which is going to destroy the fabric of this nation. Well, there's a certain amount of Hebraic exaggeration going on there. <laughs> yeah, but if we're not prophets, what else are we? If we aren't being prophetic, into places of power. What else are we doing? You know? Well, I agree with that. I think yeah. what I would say to that very clearly is that in the long term, yes, there is a threat to the social fabric because if you look at other countries, for instance, look at France, the what they call in Paris the banlieue rouge, the red suburbs, which is where there is very high concentration of Islamic minorities, mm. very high levels of ghettoization, very high levels of deprivation in huge Corbusier-style blocks of apartments, stacavonite again, built in the 50s, 60s, 70s. Uh, those create places where there is an absence of community and an opening of vulnerability to extremism, whether from right or left or from religion, that uh, is deeply threatening to the fabric of society. Now, that we're not talking about something that's going to hit us in the next 12 months, but when it's you... Generational. It's generational. It's generational. And the point about yeah. housing is what we build now is going to be around 40, 50, 60, perhaps 100 years. And the point about your report that you've been involved in is, is this going to be something that creates communities that are sustainable and safe and sociable and stable and satisfying? 
is this, would these be the touch points of a new imagination? If we're going to reimagine housing? I think the, the new imagination is a vision. And the vision is, let's build communities, not just houses. And yes. the strategy is set out beautifully by the um, five S's in the Housing Commission report. What does that look like to have the best chance of success in human terms? It's these five values of sustainable, safe, stable, social, sociable, and satisfying. Then, of course, as, as a Christian, I would want to add that within them, there needs to be a very clear spiritual basis. Uh, there needs to be education that is uh, based in fundamental long-term values that in the traditions and the culture we've inherited from our Christian heritage, and which in some ways go back even further to Aristotle and moving beyond that um these need to be places where they're i mean we're we're just starting two other um commissions based on the model of the one you've worked on which is uh, one on households and families and one on social care mm. now you can't do anything about those i just think of one of the examples i saw the other day i think it may have been in the report it may have been somewhere else i can't remember where i saw it of a family growing up with the parents and four children in one bedroom and a sitting room. So the parents yeah. sleep on the couch every night. I visited some of those homes in the well, writing of this and report. I've been a minister in, I was a minister in Toxteth. So, you know, I, I, I know these areas and, and, and I've been in them as well. And you just, I don't know what your response is. I'd be interested to in your response, but I look at those and I think you're going to have to be an extraordinary parent and an absolute hero right. if you are going to build a really health, healthy household and social and community life when your living circumstances just mean that every day is a struggle to deal with damp and crowding and all the other things. I mean, what do you think about that? I am so impressed by the reality that these things are so joined up that yes. like you've just described, I mean, it's, you can't just say, oh, you're a, a bad parent or, oh, you, you're poor or, oh, the government has failed you in this area because it's, it's so many things are coming together in one place in that one overcrowded room. It's just all the fabric of society. It, it's, it's everything. And yeah. everyone bites off little bits of it. We're totally siloed in, in our approach to it. And I think, I think that's really important. Can I ask you about the most powerful, I think one of the most powerful forces in this land is the force of nimbyism. What would you say to the righteous? You're going to be standing in front of government. You're going to be standing in parliament talking about these things. You'll stand in front of national newspapers. But what would you say to the righteously angry NIMBY, the person with the backyard that doesn't want to see change? What, what, would, we, what would you say to them? 
Thank you for that question. Could I answer another one? <laughs> and, All right, I'll ask you another one. What do you say to the NIMBY inside your own heart? <laughs> oh, well, that I, I say to the NIMBY inside my own heart, go back to the scriptures. Go back, go and read the prophets. Go and read Matthew 25. That's what I say to the NIMBY in my own heart. But that's, I sort of accept that they have authority over me those scriptures. But what I say in Parliament, I think, is first of all, I think I've learned steadily, I hope I'm learning steadily, not to be too judgmental. You know, the, the NIMBY is reacting out of fear, out of apprehension, out of a sense of wanting to preserve often what they've worked for and what they love, you know, their yeah. own area. I was a, a vicar for some time in an area where they said, the saying was, you're not local till your grandparents are in the graveyard. And, and my next door neighbor could trace her ancestry in that area back seven generations. Then when you see everything changing as that area was, you can understand why people feel really mm. apprehensive about this. Just saying grow up and be more generous doesn't do it. You've got... Because you are dealing with something. People are clutching tightly to what is rightfully theirs. It, that's, and it is rightfully theirs. And we can't, you know, that you've put your finger on it there. It is, that's the phrase. It's rightfully theirs. So how do we, I think one of the things we have to do is to say, this is not about taking away what's rightfully yours. It's about finding ways of enhancing it, giving it more depth, and giving it sustainability over the long term, so you yeah. will not be more and more threatened as time goes by. It's the clutching tightly part that might actually end up damaging the thing you're trying to protect. I think that's right. right? I mean, it, it's like gated communities in places I've been to when I travel abroad, and you'll know from the States and other places you know, where you've seen them, and I've seen them in all kinds of places, which start off as gated communities and end up as fortresses. Yeah. And is that a good place to live? No, it doesn't produce fruitful, vibrant people. No. Either. <laughs> I know. But as it's interesting, as we were talking and you asked me the question about what do I think about these people living all in one room and in moldy damp houses with uh, rapacious landlords. And I, I start to get righteously angry. And I realized I'm basically saying not in my backyard. Oh, isn't that I interesting? Could, we could harness the power of nimbyism. <laughs> I really like that. That's really good. So let's be nimbies, but let's be let's nimbies be NIMBYs. about injustice. This isn't going to happen on my watch. Uh, yeah. Not That's in our church. We have backyards. If you are a member of the Church of England, if you go to Church of England churches, you've got a lot of backyards. <laughs> you've got a lot of backyards. We've got about 15,000, 16,000 of them. Um, and we cover every inch of England. And we can look at that land and we can say, these things are not going to happen in our backyards. I think we can. Um, there is, again... There's a real struggle to do that because, you know, people say, why don't you give away your property? Well, I mean, quite apart from the legalities, the church commissioners are 
the second or third largest grant maker in the charitable grant maker in the country. We don't say to the Wellcome Trust, give away all your endowment because we know full well that then they wouldn't be able to fund future uh, research on medicines and vaccines and things. Um, and the Church of England uses its assets well. But the question, I think, the challenge that we rightly need to have put to us is use the assets well in a broader sense than merely financially for the common good. Like a, a common question that will probably be swatted at you is, well, what about you? You live in Lambeth Palace. How come you're not giving your, your house, your palace away? What is this? Is this part of the answer to that kind of well, the, there are two answers to that. First of all, sadly, I don't own it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Nobody can give what they haven't got. And on the day I retire, yeah. it's a two-bed semi with, with everyone else, Yeah. Um, if yeah. I can afford it. And um, so, that's, I mean, that's the truthful answer. It's tied housing, so it's not going yes. to give. The, Again, it's generational. It's, it's it, That's a question for the church commissioners. Um, yeah. The... Second answer to that is we have we are COVID aside, we are trying to use it much more for the community. I mean, we last uh, 2019 before COVID hit us, in during the summer, 10,000 people came to meals and things here. We use the place very extensively. We have a resident community of people, which is mm. quite extensive. We used it during COVID. It was a haven for people from St. Thomas's for the staff to come into the garden and just yeah. relax and rest. So I, I operate on a great deal of guilt on this one. Um, and um, we do open it up a good deal and try and make sure that it is, uh, it's a green lung in this part of London. I, one of the phrases that I often use, and my listeners will definitely have heard this before, is the you know, the idea of kenosis, you know, when Jesus yeah, does yeah. not consider equality with God, something to be grasped, but instead he, and then the, the phrase is kenosis and, and it, it's not emptied himself. It's put a limit on himself. And uh, you probably know Sarah Coakley, the, the priest in Cambridge, and she writes about this and she calls that gentle space making. Oh, I love that. I didn't know that phrase. You put a limit on yourself to make space for other selves. Um, I've talked a lot about this recently. I usually, it's one of my main themes at Christmas because, and this Christmas I was talking about the God who makes himself so small that he fits into a manger and there's room to spare. That's kenosis. That's kenosis. So that's what I said. Yeah. And I talk about generous space making. Um, and so gentle space making, I quite, it's, I think it, it it's, both gentle, but it's also generous. God stands back from us in the most beautiful way. Now, that is a powerful image for what we, how we build communities and how we build houses. Do we make space for the life of that community to evolve and generate? You can plant communities, you can't make them grow. You can't dominate. That's where the gentle is opposed to domination, right? It is. You can't force it. And yet, yeah. as we've seen, I mean, uh, to take a very recent example, do you remember a couple of weeks, three weeks, 
four weeks ago, just before three weeks, just before Christmas, um, there was a huge crisis at Dover uh, when the new variant of COVID came in and the French government yeah. and the Europe, Europe closed down. And we had yeah. these 9,000 lorries um, backed up in, in Kent. What yeah. wasn't reported nearly as much, of course, was there were also huge numbers of minibuses with Eastern European families of um, uh, people who were seasonal workers going back for Christmas and New Year to their homes in Eastern Europe, particularly Romania, Bulgaria, that kind of thing. Yeah. And the lorry drivers had a very rough time of it, but all these long distance trucks, they have a bed in the cab, they have heating, they have emergency rations. They're part of the job is you get used to being stuck at borders. The minibuses had nothing. And uh, I went down to Dover um, and saw a community there. And it's a very deprived community, Dover. It's a poor town because um, everyone goes through it. And the churches had, churches together in Dover had worked with the district council who said without the churches, they couldn't have done what they did. The town poured out one of the... Um, one of the curates in the town, who's wonderful, went to um, went round to all the takeaways and said, "Look, here's a deal. You need cash flow because sales are down. We need food. You do takeaways at fifty percent. We'll buy everything you can give us." Yeah. And they said yes, but they also came out and gave away food. People were coming out and giving things away and giving things away. That's community. But yeah. that's not top-down community. That's somehow creating gentle, gently creating space in which lovely parts of the human being can just emerge. I was going to say that that's very much more cheeky, ducking and diving, traveling low and light across the ground kind of attitude of like, let's solve these problems, local problems to national or local solutions to national problems, I guess. Well, right? I, and I think that's, yeah, that's what really good communities do. Yeah. And it's our job, I suppose, as establishment people to maybe get out of the way or to create structures in which that can happen and not squash it. Is that how Don't you see need... your role? I think we need to avoid command and control systems. We need to be permission giving and resource enabling. We need to bless these things. And of course, blessing them is not turning up and saying, hey, bless you, my children, like, you know, that dreadful postman Pat character, Father Tims or something, <laughs> the Reverend Tims, I think he was called who, when I was reading to my children when they were little, I would always skip that bit because he made me want yes. to throw up. But <laughs> it's not doing that. It's actually saying, um, which is what the Diocese of Canterbury did, they provided money, a bit of money, so they could buy some more stuff. Um, the Roman Catholics provided a church building. Um, other churches were throwing volunteers at it. There was nothing yeah. centralized, but the central, in this case, the central body in Canterbury 
bless the work by giving some enabling. Yeah. So just making it easier to do. Yeah. Because as you say, this is a big problem which involves so many different aspects. No one group is going to solve it all. And, and having spent a lot of my ministry or a lot of the ministry I've, I've been given in outside, a long way away from London, um, in this country, I, you know, if you're in Liverpool, London's another planet. Mm. And the idea that someone, some bright spark in Whitehall can solve the problems in Liverpool is just nonsense. They've got brilliant people there. It's the most, one of the most wonderful places we've ever lived. All they need is to, I mean, Heseltine was good at making it possible for them after the Toxteth riots in the 80s, making it possible for Liverpool to begin to recover through their own natural genius. Yeah, get out of the way and let it happen. One thing we noticed, of course, on the report is there is a national housing crisis, but it looks different in different places. So in London, not enough houses. In Liverpool, too many. I mean, there's lots of uh, you know, the, the, the housing crisis. Now, that is absolutely right. And too many, with a lot of them, a very inadequate structure. They're exactly. not sustainable. Exactly. They're not stable. They're not safe. They're not sociable. And they're not satisfied. And that's our job. Archbishop Justin Welby, thank you for your time. I am aware that you need to go on and do other things, but I am so glad that you joined us at the tent well, this thank you. time. Uh, Stephen, and thank you for your work on the commission. And I'm really, and I'm thrilled to know that we have acquaintances in common. So God bless you. Thank you. I'll see you again soon. See you soon. Thank you. Goodbye. Bye. To further support the show, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media and learn more about 10th Theology at www.10thTheology.com. Thank you for joining us and God bless everyone.